Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me is commissioning editor, cheese muncher and guru of the romance languages, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, how is your neck? My neck is fine, thank you. It wasn't fine last it week, was there was not. it? No, you're referring to, I had an incredibly stiff neck. And how did you get this stiff it, it neck? It rendered me... Immobile. Yeah, it's not funny. No, it wasn't. I find it funny because you did it in your sleep. It was. Yeah, it was. I think it was an extreme reaction. It was an extreme reaction to being shackled to my desk again after after being a free animal roaming roaming the the highlands highlands. after the stags. (laughs) And you woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah, I had sleep paralysis, uh, which is very common among prepubescent boys, apparently. <laughs> and me. Yeah. <laughs> so. See, I think it sounds like a condition for the elderly. You cricked your neck. Yeah. And oh, you... my gosh, it made the most horrible noise. Oh, no. Yeah. And, and what, how I did couldn't you, move. And how did you fix it? I went to the physio, yeah. who told me not to move. But I didn't I didn't do as I was told, and I just I had to test it. You know, if you're told you can't, so, don't move, you have to sort of test it. So what did you do? I just looked left and right quite a lot. And it worked? Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> More or less. Looking after left after and few right. days. But you're feeling fine now. And up and down. And you're happy now. Uh, <laughs> yes, no, I am. Insofar as I mean, any of us are happy. Yeah, in, insofar as any of us can be happy in this veil of sorrows, <laughs> Thea, are you happy now? I am. Yeah, that's lovely. If you want to subscribe to the TLS and join our happy band, uh, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Someone tweeted me the other day saying that they'd done just that, which made me feel very proud. Uh, coming up on the show this week, it's our summer double issue, so there should be no paper or podcast next week. Uh, And it's led by a long piece by Sam Leith on the problem of fake news in a post-truth world. Three books, all with post-truth in the title, were published within a couple of weeks this summer, and Sam has reviewed them for us. Are disdain for honesty and confirmation bias really modern phenomena? We've also extracted a big American book that's set to get a lot of attention this autumn. It's called My Absolute Darling, and it is the debut novel by Gabriel Talent. He'll be here to tell us more. And we have published some reportage by writer Alev Scott, who has visited the leaders of the Druze sect in Lebanon. Perhaps one of those groups you hear a little about but don't know too much about. Well, Alev will be in the studio to give us the inside track. 
The word of the year last year, according to Oxford Dictionaries, was post-truth, denoting our global society's reluctance to care collectively about things like honesty or veracity. But whether our insouciance towards the truth is a new and zeitgeisty development is perhaps a moot point. Spectator literary editor, among many other jobs, they was just saying that she saw you in Red magazine. Oh, no. Once. She? Are you a columnist there? I must have been in blackout when I wrote that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he's everywhere. I mean, you, you, you can't fall over in any form I of... I don't uh, read Red Magazine. You read Red Magazine. I do not read well, it. Just, the, the just, just to put that out there, just I feel like you're gender stereotyping well, you, look, me. How am I doing that? Then? Did you tell me that you read some leaf in Red Magazine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, just the, it's just the truth. Fake news. It's not fake news. Anyway, if you if you, you probably have stumbled across Sam in a variety of different titles. But this week in the TLS, he's reviewing three books which all feature post-truth in their titles. Sam is not convinced that there was ever a prelapsarian age in which truth was a powerful and valued commodity. If you think that was the case, he argues, I have a bridge to sell you. And so does P.T. Barnum. And so does the author of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And so does Baron Munchausen. And Herodotus come to that. It is incontrovertible, however, that the media through which post-truth material, or bullshit, as it might be better known, is communicated has altered beyond repair. Mass market news sites have become sweatshops of bullshit. Under pressure to deliver clicks, they've created a model by which digital growth only comes with increasing numbers of thinly sourced stories inelegantly sold using misleading headlines. What's important is not the quality of the information, but the number of people being lured to click on it in the first place. As digital yields on advertisements decline, more clicks are needed, which means exponentially more bullshit. Facebook is evidently a villain here. It has more than 2 billion monthly users, a third of humanity, and has provided a fertile market for stories that are either wholly untrue, the fake news created in Macedonian towns that dominated the US election, misleadingly titled, or shared because they confirm an existing bias. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on, as Churchill is widely quoted on social media as saying. I thought it was boots, boots. rather than pants. It's pants. But is it pants? Yeah. I can't imagine. Well, it's, not, it's not a real quote, though. It's really funny. Pants is better. It's pants. Well, it, and if you go back through the history of its quotation, there's a, there's a period where it's twain. And then for some mysterious reason, it becomes Churchill. Well, he has a gravitational attraction to quotations. They, any yeah. free-floating mm. quotations. It's like the Orwell one. You know, there's an Orwell one, which is always on social media, which is the news is what someone somewhere doesn't want you to report. Everything else is public relations. And this is attributed to Orwell, who predated the public relations yeah. industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's shared all the time. And then it, because it fits a confirmation bias, everyone goes, oh, yes, Orwell, going against uh, public relations. And he didn't do it. So anyway, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. What shall we conclude really from, from the fact that there are three books, all called Post-Truth, by Matthew Dancona, Evan Davis and James Ball. They're all published pretty much at they the same time. They're published within a week of each other. And I think there's a, you know, they're journalistic books. They're kind of hitting this sort of zeitgeisty thing. And of course, the moment Oxford Dictionary says the word of the year 2016 is post-truth and the moment that fake news and post-truth and so on become the currency of the sort of international conversation. Of course, everybody's going to scramble to get a book out on it. And actually, these three are pretty good books. They're pretty good journalists. journalists yeah, they're, they're good journalists and they're good books written, obviously, in haste, but with with slightly different sorts of lines. I mean, Matt Dancona's is a much kind of narrower, thinner, more theoretical book, but he's very elegant in sort of going back to the Enlightenment and reasserting these sort of Enlightenment values, such as 
we imagine them to have been, and takes the descent down through kind of Harry Frankfurt's, you know, on bullshit. Yeah. And he, he sort of has this swerve into the idea that all these post-structuralist French philosophers are responsible for what's going on now, which I, I think puts the cart before the horse, personally. I but, do think yeah. there is something... I was thinking about this the other day, that postmodernism has a lot to answer for, though, because wouldn't you... You know, at a, one level, it's very healthy and important. You question the source of authority, you look behind the words, behind the structures. That's very healthy. But if you do that for everything you then lose any sense of what authority is. So Donald Trump becomes just a legitimate source of information as a as a medical journal because you're questioning all authority all the time. You don't really privilege any form of authority. Well, I think that is that is the problem, but that's a sort of, I suspect, a kind of almost naive reading of, of those philosophers because, I mean, it's a, the idea that wall-to-wall textuality means everything goes in quotes and you know, nothing has any authority seems to me to be a kind of a sort of reductio ad absurdum of of that position. I mean, scepticism is obviously a healthy virtue, but absolute scepticism. I mean, there's what an old colleague of mine used to call naive cynicism, um, which I think was was dead on. You know, the people say, "Oh, of course, you know, if you think the moon landings were real, you know, you you haven't thought deeply enough." Yeah. Um, and actually, the opposite is the case. You know, um, but my point isn't that people are reading, misreading, or reading postmodern or post-structuralism. I'm saying that's just that's become that challenge to authority has become the spirit of the age so everyone is a conspiracy theorist everyone wants to believe their own particular brand of bullshit whereas 50 years ago if the state for example or a doctor said that is the truth you'd you'd say most people would say oh i probably should accept that and that's that's what's changed there is a kind of diffusion line thing going on that um you know what what started out you know deconstruction has become something people now use they'll say i'm deconstructing this argument when they just mean analysing yeah. or, you know, considering. And, you know, what what sort of, over the last 20 or 30 years, what's with kind of quite narrow terms in philosophy and, you know, philosophy of language and epistemology have kind of diffused into a kind of pop idea of them. But I don't actually think that's at the centre, really, of what we're seeing. I think it's much more a story about the media and the way in which, as you say, the kind of funding models that allowed mainstream media to, as it were, do their basic task of verification, have kind of vanished. And at the same time, there's a sort of huge sea of information, which in some ways is a good thing, because obviously we're no longer getting our information through a kind of narrow pipe, but through a blasting sort of faucet shower. It's still a very sewery metaphor. metaphor (laughs) The metaphor is getting well out of control. But much more of it's to do with the fact that rather than having if you like, a kind of single conversation, you know, which is conducted through a small number of mainstream media institutions. We're now in a situation where the conversations are completely disaggregated. I mean, Mark Thompson in his book, the former BBC DG. Yeah, it's an incredibly, a book which is... Is it called Enough Said? Yeah. I think it might have been. Doesn't he try and, he he throws about lots of uh, very technical philosophical terms in it. I, I well, he does. Well, I, I approve of that. Because, yeah, I know um, that's I'm the... always banging on about rhetoric. <laughs> yeah. I, I think... Uh, you know, my Our argument... review was a bit, was a little bit snooty of that. Who reviewed it for us? I can't remember. Was it Simon Jenkins? Someone reviewed it for us and oh, I thought, right, I thought right, I, yeah. he, he slightly sort of swallowed a thesaurus. Well, I kind it. of think, um, you know, I, you might say with Christine Keeler, you know, he would, wouldn't he? Um, I think that rhetoric is a good way to approach this from, at least in making the argument that, you know, Logos, which is the part of the Aristotelian triad of ethos, pathos and logos, which is concerned with, you know, the facts and the sort of material 
witnesses to the argument. It's never been the most powerful of the appeals. Ident- you know, rhetoric's always been about identity speech, about the swaying of emotions. And what we're just seeing is that it's become kind of, not quite weaponized, but all of the things that make rhetoric most, most dangerous and most persuasive have become massively amplified in a media environment in which the way we spread news is in these sort of social silos and these kind of in-groups and these ideas that, you know, you trust Facebook recommendations or you retweet anything from your, you know, a self-selecting circle. So filter bubbles basically massively accelerates the possibility that rhetorical... I suppose there's something about the ease and the, the, the speed of it as well, which just makes it that much more intense. Yeah, I think people have also been, you know, I'm always kind of faintly sceptical of the pop neuroscience stuff, but you do read a lot that, you know, every time you retweet something or someone likes your Facebook thing or you get a retweet, you're getting a little dopamine hit and that therefore mm-hmm. we're like these little sort of rats yeah. paddling away at their paddles to get there. I'm sure that's well, what you see, I mean, so right. often something is, is, is posted and it's, it's retweeted or liked before anyone could possibly have even opened the link. So, yeah, well, yeah. one of the things that's really interesting in James Ball's yeah, book, exactly. and James Ball, who wrote a third of the books we're discussing, also called Post Truth inconveniently. <laughs> so, <laughs> but James Ball's a sort of digital journalist. He came through WikiLeaks and he was involved with I mean, he now works at BuzzFeed and he was involved in the Guardian's digital operation. He does a lot with data. He does a lot with kind of online and social media stuff. And so he's quite well placed to kind of sift through the metrics of how this stuff works. And one of the terrifying statistics he has is about how many sort of fake newsy or even you know, true things get shared without the person having read beyond the headline. It's 60%. It's something like 60%. I can't remember the figure. but And so he says, well, you know, part of the problem with this is that if your headline, even if it's quite even-handed and not strictly untrue, but doesn't make clear that it's a claim that you're not endorsing, X claims Y. You know, we as journalists know that that means X is saying this, we don't vouch for it. But most people simply see Y, and that's what they retweet. And they will tend to, and again, Ball makes the point, he said, fact checkers are all very well, but they mostly only serve you know, a very small number of people who are interested in fact checking. And generally, the only fact checks you look up are fact checks on claims that you think are probably wrong because you disagree with them. Well, that, that's the, the sort of the most, the darkest side of all of this is that it's only really the people who are worried about whether there is a factual basis to a story that will care about checking the facts. I mean, it's yes. sort of, it's an irrelevance to most people because they like the sound of the story. Exactly. And it fits in with your preconceptions. And Evan Davis's book, you know, Evan Davis, obviously, you know, former economics editor of Newsnight, he comes again from background in economics. And so he's able to bring in the sort of third approach to it, which is exactly what you describe. And obviously, economics is where a lot of work has been done, started in psychology, but it bled into behavioral economics on those biases and confirmation bias, which is the one that we're seeing most of, which is if you like the sound of something, if you think it sounds true, that's the one you want to do. I mean, Richard Ingram's, though, again, show this isn't new. He used to apparently sit when he was editing Private Eye and somebody would come up and say, I've got this story that, you know, X is sleeping with Y or that Z is on the take. And he would hold a little imaginary bell up to his ear and go, ding, ding, ding. It has the ring of truth. Publish it. <laughs> so there's a I suppose it's that thing, I mean, sig- signalling theory is is the thing that you that you talk about that he's that Evan Davis has drawn from advertising. Yes, and that's fascinating because it, that's sort of based on the fact that a product wouldn't say we can make your whites whiter than white in in, in laundry if it weren't based in some fact because it wouldn't it wouldn't be worth 
uh, the risk of someone coming along and saying, well, actually, that's not true. And you no, wasted subtle, all of the money. It's a very subtle argument that was new on me and it made me sort of kind of but entirely if you, rethink if, if, you, if you then extend that to, to someone saying something, a story, it, it sort of follows that someone wouldn't say something if it weren't true. It's, it's, but what's interesting, and actually, Private Eye is a really good example of that. Private Eye, when you read it, you believe everything that's in it. When it's about something you know about, you see how partial necessarily the stories are because they've come from often one source in, in a disgruntled fashion. Um, and that's the interesting so thing about. It's been written about in private eye. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the confirmation bias, that's the point that even though at one rational level you are sceptical, because you want to share the story because it conforms to what you believe, or you want to virtue signal by saying, I'm the sort of person who will share this story, you place aside your scepticism even though you're sceptical about absolutely everything else. That, and that's what I think is interesting, is that it becomes a sort of collective psychosis that we're, we're seeing, where everyone shares stuff, and they tamp down their disbelief when it suits them, and they amplify their disbelief when it suits them. Yes, it does kind of drive people into more and more extreme positions, which exactly. are, of course, which associated with social groups as well. I mean, as, you know, as you say, there's confirmation bias, you know, am I inclined to believe it already? But what determines whether you're inclined to believe it often is you know, who you hear it from. And, you know, the, the two go hand in hand because, of course, if you're retreating into these sort of identitarian groups, you know, what you believe and who you hear it from will be kind of intimately associated. And meanwhile, or, I, mean, I mean, who do you blame more for this? Because the media, in the sense of the old media, are just churning out this crap deliberately because it, they, their business model is digital yields are going down, so we're screwed, but we have to try and get as many people as possible, so we just have to churn out as much crap as possible to get minuscule amounts of advertising yield, and inc- and every time we, we get more of that, we get a little bit more. Then you have new sites like the Canary and Squawk Box, sort of, who join this merry throng, whose whole business model is built around spreading bullshit. And then you have social media, Facebook sorry, being... Spreading bullshit, surely holding the lying mainstream <laughs> oh, media to oh, account. Sorry, hashtag mainstream media, of course. <laughs> uh, but then you have Facebook, whose, in, again, entire business model is about sharing and getting people to stick around so they can harvest all the advertising without contributing to any of the cost of producing stories. The entire economy... Well, the currency of the internet is attention, not, you know, truth. Yeah. And I think that's... Maybe that's the, the, the pivot, that... We've always had sort of an attention economy, but never one in which attention is spread quite so thinly and there is quite so much competition for it. And, and everyone is complicit. It. I mean, because the other thing that, that comes out in the book, uh, I've read James Ball's book, but I'm sure in all of them, there's the Trump and Brexit as both examples of it. Do you, do you get that sense that when, when you're looking for a real world consequence of what we're talking about, in Britain, they'd say Brexit and in America, they'd say Trump? Yeah, I think that's another reason that the whole post-truth conversation and you know it has become so attractive to journalists wanting to write books because you know we've got these two socking great things which have enlivened and horrified our trade you know in equal measure you know all the books kind of cover to a certain extent the same turf in terms of real world examples you know there's you know the global warming debate always gets a hat tip trump and brexit particularly and, you know, all those lovely formulations like alternative facts. Trump's inauguration becomes a kind of lovely little micro-study into how it works and, you know, how pro- post-truth, and, you know, in Pizzagate and things like that. And gaslighting is the thing I was very struck with with Trump. Have you, have you come across gaslighting? It's from a Wasn't pl- it Lauren Duca came up with that, how yeah. Trump is gaslighting America? Yeah, yeah. It's, from a, it's from a play, isn't it? It's from a play by who the guy wrote Rope, 
who we should all know being being, being uh, literary figures. Yeah, it was made into an incredible film. In yeah, the 40s. yeah. yeah. Uh, but so the idea that, that a woman is being abused by her husband, and so she's not. A, he gradually he he keeps telling her she can't believe the sights of her own eyes, mm, and, and she's dimming. Subtly. He's dimming the lights, yeah. and by the end she doesn't know if the, that it's getting darker or not because she's completely been undermined. And the theory is that Trump is and. That's a, that seems to be quite a nice metaphor for it. You, 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 if you no longer believe the evidence of your own eyes, there's nothing to set against. As well, that, that, I mean, that argument goes on as, as at least one of these books notes. The Patrick Hamilton, sorry, to the campaign. You know, the, the vicious fight by Big Tobacco to prevent the whole cancer link with tobacco coming out. The executives and PR people said, "We've realised what we need to do is not try and take on the scientists." properly but simply to argue the science isn't properly established to say that there's two sides to this and actually that's one of the real difficulties in the kind of gaslighting you know is, is it climate change true is that as well yes just recently there was a yeah. row about is it balance objectivity norms of newspapers and television broadcast networks often tend to say we must give balance to this point therefore Let's have, yeah, Lawson, let's have, earth, let's have yeah. Nigel Lawson on to, to debate a climate scientist. Yes, yeah, so we say exactly. We have someone who says the Earth is flat, and someone who says no, it isn't. Then um, they both have to give, be given equal time in the studio. We've and we've done our duty by objectivity, and, and I think that's that's becoming a real problem. Well, and we should talk about the fight back to use the term. There is that no one fight of the books, back. Well, that one of the books, you know, a couple of the books, in fact, talk about this fight back. So, yeah. in terms of what is being done, we've got loads of fact-checking bodies and businesses which, of course, have their own problems, their own biases. Is that really our best chance? Well, I don't <laughs> think anybody thinks they can be because even the most successful fact-checking site is not getting nearly as many clicks as, say, you know, Breitbart or Fox News or, or you know, on the left, the Aerial Squawk Box or whatever. You know, very often, the you know, rebuttal is complicated and boring and the lie is quick, easy and profitable. I mean, I have to say, I don't find myself feeling very optimistic at all. Mm. I mean, both Evan Davis and Matthew Dacona end, I mean, almost the last sentences of each of their books are words to the effect of, but I think it'll all turn out <laughs> all right in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish I could share their enthusiasm. I mean, James Ball has some practical points about saying, you know, people need to learn to educate themselves about statistics. You know, as consumers, we need to do some work on this. Obviously, he's writing for people who are aware of that. Yes, he's writing for people who already care. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's, that's well, the problem. I think so, this is a very narrow little conversation. Well, can we end it with how you ended stuff. your article? You ended it with some Anglo-Saxon poetry well, from The Wanderer, like didn't you? I always Anglo-Saxon <laughs> yeah. poetry. Um, can, can you pronounce it? Probably wrongly, Go but on. I said that I thought bullshit befull arad, which means bullshit is fully inexorable. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we should probably leave it there. <laughs> Sam Lee, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My Absolute Darling is a novel which, if you've somehow missed the pre-release hysteria, is likely to prove all but inescapable after it's published later this month. Gabriel Talent, the American author whose debut this is, seems to be testing every reviewer's resistance to name-based puns. The novel in question is a particularly brutal coming-of-age tale charting one year, the pivotal 14th, in the life of a girl called Julia, or Turtle, or Kibble, depending on who's talking. She is the absolute darling of the title, the term of stifling and destructive endearment used by her loving and abusive father Martin, a survivalist with three years' worth of dried food in store, and a Colt 1911 loaded with cheap and dirty ammunition. The TLS is running a characteristically fraught extract from the novel in this week's issue, and we're pleased to be joined on the line by the author now. Hi, Gabriel. Yes. Hi, thanks for, um, thanks for coming on. 
it must, I mean, it must feel a little like things have been hurtling for you. With I mean, we started with a frenzied eight-way publishing auction in 2015, and then there's been this wall of sound reception for your novel so far. So let's take a step back and discuss the work's gestation. The material at its heart, it's exceedingly dark and difficult. What was that like to to write about? How easily did the novel come together? Look, it's challenging work to spend that much time working with material that 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 is that upsetting that um that I found that difficult but sometimes that's that's what literary projects are about or that has always interested me in literary projects when I was a young reader I was I was very much drawn to books that were pretty serious about life and in which bad things happened because that seemed to me a very productive part of fiction the sort of when characters grapple with the moment at which their life begins to fall apart and how they find their way forward. So which sort of books are you talking about? I'm interested. What, what, what are your influences? What, what sort of books are you talking about there? Oh, man. Um, I read very widely as a child, but this is a little ridiculous, but I fell in love with Greek tragedies as, a, yeah. as, as like a teenager. Yeah. And just used to read like a lot of Aeschylus and Sophocles. And I don't know why I loved it so much, but I... I loved it. Um, the problems are in those stories are so deeply intractable yeah. that it seems like you have to keep reading to see how this can ever reach a resolution. If resolution is at all possible, and people are dealing you know, with forces I, that they can't control. I mean, I guess that's the thrust of it, isn't it? That, that's and you see this a bit in your your book as well. There, are, there seems to be fate taking over all the time, and people scrabbling around to to to, to get back a bit of agency for themselves. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely an element, but sometimes there's also just bad blood. Characters find themselves in feuds and in sort of in these conflicts which cannot be remediated. And I, I, I guess I was just I was drawn to that. And I think that although that material can be really dark, sometimes there's something comforting when fiction is willing to go there. It can make you feel less alone when you yourself grapple with something or when you yourself find yourself at the limit of what is tolerable or what you know how to resolve. It's interesting that your your book in the in the early praise that's come to it, everyone has obviously focused on the character of Turtle and she's been called our generation's next beloved heroine. I wonder to what extent the novel is an inquiry into into different models of heroism, pitting you know, the survivor of abuse turtle against her survivalist father, for instance. It's like I, I guess I find it interesting that hero literally translated means protector or defender, which obviously prompts the questions of what from from what. I was deeply interested in how we see other people. I think that that is something that the novel is grappling with and which I have always grappled with and which I grapple with in fiction, and I love it in fiction. Um, and so the book is concerned with what our role is to other people, right? In, in, in the novel, there are characters for whom other people have no reality or, or sort of other people are not important ends in themselves. Turtle is at a crisis where she is trying to envision herself and who she wants to be when she lives with a person and in constant contact with a very charismatic person who doesn't see her as having a reality independent from her own. So she's embarked upon a serious project of self-determination. 
I think that that project is always tied up with how we see other people, and I think that that project is always tied up with issues of heroism. And I think we we become our best selves when we take other people seriously as independent from us and as ends in ourselves and never as crutches to our own personal development or as pawns in our own game. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and in some ways the act of reading uh, enacts that, doesn't it? Because it's, a, it's an act of forced empathy because we have to appreciate uh, the perspectives of other people because that's, the, the, that's, that's inherent in, in the act of reading. Yeah, in some ways reading or writing is the project of vividly imagining that other people exist. And it's, it's one of the few times when we have access to other people's minds. Gabriel, just finally, what's the, what are you expecting out of this book? Because there's a lot of talk about it. There was a big, as Thea said, big fevered auction for it. What are you expecting over the coming months for it? Are you able to, I mean, now it's done, now it's published. Are you protective of it? Are you excited about people getting a chance to see it? Are you, are you desperate to keep an eye on sales? What, what, what are you thinking now as, as publication date looms? I'm thrilled at the opportunity of meeting and spending some time with some booksellers. That has been the greatest honor that life as a professional writer has afforded me and the biggest change to my lifestyle. I had some wonderful, wonderful sit-down lunches and dinners and to meet booksellers here in America. And that is always an experience that gives me hope. As for whether I'm protective of the book, once you write a novel, it's sort of its interpretation is out of your hands. And that's why you work like hell writing it. Then you've got to let it go. Go, little book. You've got to let it out into the world, haven't you? <laughs> what, what? Sorry, I was, I was just laughing then because you couldn't see Stig's um, gesture to, to illustrate what l- letting a little book go looked like. It, it was, was rugged. Something like a bird, It I was think. rugged. I think, I think as this is not uh, visual in any way, we can all agree it was a rugged sight of me. It was a rugged me. bird, it was a re- like an eagle. It was, yeah, I was releasing. <laughs> it was a your, very masculine gesture, yeah. I think, is what we're... Yeah, on your behalf, Gabriel, I was releasing a giant eagle of a book. On which hysterical note, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we need to Well, I, hope it. It, and Gabriel, I actually have read your, uh, the book and the fiction editor, the TLS, has read it as well. And we both thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, good luck with that, that response that's coming your way. Thank you very much. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wally Jumblatt has the air of quiet dignity which befits a retired warlord with nearly half a million Twitter followers. So begins Alev Scott's essay on her experiences among the Druze of the Lebanon, one of the country's 18 recognised minorities, who number about a quarter of a million people. Alev not only chatted to Jumblat, but also visited the religious elders in the south of the country, led by Sheikh Salah Abu Mansour. They're a friendly, open to compromise, but also resolute. They think non-Druze will perish at the Day of Judgment. They're very phallocentric in their organisation. Alev's story is an odd and an enlightening one, and she joins Thea and me in the studio now. Alev, welcome. Why don't we start? Cause I, I wonder how many people have heard a little bit about the Druze, but, but don't know very much about them. Who are they and what do they believe? Um, well, yeah, they are quite an obscure mon- minority. Lebanon is an incredibly mixed place, and so they blend in as many of the minorities do. Um, but I think outside of that... They're a strange combination of multiple faiths in a yeah, way. Yeah, very strange. So they're, I guess they're people of the book, sort of, in that they are an Abrahamic religion. Um, they follow elements of the Quran and the Bible, but they think that there is an eternal truth that sort of pervades history and it is also present in the writings of the Greek philosophers, for example, Plato and Aristotle. And so they, they study those philosophers as well, but they're very careful to guard their religious secrets so people like you and I are allowed to know a bit but we would never be taught the intricacies of the religion because they they sort of keep that a secret and that's interesting because I mean what what what's the kind of the stability of the faith because you're not allowed to kind of convert in so yeah so I suppose it's 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 dying in a sense well I don't know if it's technically dying out but certainly the more the younger elements of the religion um, are, are not as as strict as their as their parents or grandparents' generation. I think it is the, the Druze elders that I talked to were a little worried about it diluting. Well, yeah. let's talk about them before the elders. Let's talk about Walid Jumblat. The, yeah. the, who is he? Uh, he's, he's he's on Twitter. If you go to him on Twitter, he's got a picture of him and his dog. Called Oscar. Oscar. Yeah. Oscar's very important in the life of Walid. So and te- I've, I've met Oscar actually. He, um, was he nice? He was nice. Luckily, we got on. Apparently, Oscar can take against people. He um, particularly dislikes people in employment, in Walid's employment, for some reason. He, he can apparently distinguish between different social classes, according, really? according to Walid. Uh, so tell us about Walid. He, he sounds like a character that someone has written. And, uh... Yeah, I, know, I wish I'd written him. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he exists and has done for, uh, for decades. And uh, one of my favourite pieces of writing about Walid, which I read several times before I went to have dinner with him, is a, a Playboy interview that he gave in 1984, I believe. Um, which is this long interview which goes into a lot of, of, of the politics of the time. He just um, had an altercation with Reagan, his, uh, his, his Druze sort of militia had, had uh, fought with Reagan's Marines um, in the Bay of Beirut. Um, so, so this interview is very... It's, it's also, it takes place in the Geneva Peace Talks. Um, so in the midst of that, and he's talking about politics and he's talking about how actually sometimes you have to pretend to take part in negotiations so that your people believe you're doing something, but actually um, it doesn't really 
it doesn't really have any effect. So he's incredibly cynical and incredibly open um, in some respects. Uh, he's a very interesting operator. Anyway, in, in this interview, he interrupts at one point to ask his interviewer, have you seen the Playmate on this edition, the edition that this interview is going to go into? What is she beautiful? And the interviewer says, I, I'm afraid I don't know. And um, Willie says, well, you know, hopefully she will be. And when I brought up this interview at the dinner I had with him, um, the first thing he said was, yes, the, the shame the, the shame about that interview is that the Playmate didn't turn out to be very beautiful. Oh, no. So that was my main regret. <laughs> you know, this kind of really important political juncture in, 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 the, in the 1980s, and that was his main memory. And he's kind of, I mean, he, he's retired now, and he's handed over the reins to his son, is that right? Yeah, technically, yes. But he's still the, the central figure. I think a lot of Lebanese people still associate him as the political leader of the truth. How did, how, sorry, how did this come about, that, we, that we've got a leader of a very puritanically faithful religious group, and he is, he is not faithful? He drinks champagne and appears, I mean, albeit not in that way, but appears in Playboy. He's the political leader, I would say, not the religious leader. So I, I guess there's quite a sort of pragmatic attitude to politics in Lebanon. It's very cutthroat. It's... Um, it's very, for want of a better word, it's very political. Um, so I don't think they don't see any any paradox in him not being religious. And what role do the Jews play? I think that's interesting because they are a minority, but they kind of look across all sorts of different uh, other entities. Bearing in mind they are this weird hybrid religion. Mm. What role do they play as power brokers in Lebanon? Why are are they significant? Well, they don't have huge numbers in Parliament, but they are quite significant in that sometimes, you know, if, if a, a vote is quite finely balanced, their their input will count. So Walid in particular is very canny about kind of throwing his lot in with various people. I mean, he's just sort of, he's a bit of a political weather vane. He sees where the wind is blowing and, and what would, will be most beneficial for the Druze, and he goes with that. So his stance on Assad, for example, he's basically not, not a fan of Assad at all. Uh, in fact, his father was probably murdered by Bashar al-Assad's uncle. But he's pragmatic and his, his rhetoric has changed over the years. And he's he's really good at doing that. He's disliked for it by some people, but he's also admired for it. And um, he's just through and through a politician. And he's a survivor. He's a survivor, yeah. Tell us what happened when you went to see the, the elders. Yeah, that was very interesting. This isn't in the piece, but actually I wasn't entirely sure how to dress when I showed up to my first meeting. So I'm guessing you didn't take champagne this time. Didn't take didn't. champagne. <laughs> left the champagne for Walid on ice and uh, you know, set off without, without any alcohol. And I thought, well, I know they're really quite religious. I mean, they, they are literally uh, elders of this religion, so I will cover up. Um, I'm used to living in the Middle East. I lived in Turkey and so on, and I... I you know, I have a certain outfit, actually, that I wear in hot countries, which is nevertheless kind of legit. And I covered my head and I and I walked in. And the first thing that the man who, who led me into the, the room said was, um, are you doing that for our benefit? He clearly saw me. He pegged <laughs> me immediately as, as a non-religious Muslim woman. And, uh, and I said, well... I, Yes. Um, and he said, yeah, it's fine. We're OK. We deal in the modern world. It's 21st century. You don't need to. He sort of mocked me a bit, um, which was fine. So I, I took it off. And... But they're not so modern that they don't think that men are authority figures. There's a great quote about sperm. Yeah. So um, sperm, apparently, according to another elder that I interviewed, it has exactly the same 16 minerals um, as the earth, which means that sperm is is sort of 
symbolically and literally earth uh, life-giving um, every sperm is sacred as monty python indeed once, indeed once i didn't sang. actually quote monty python <laughs> at the elder because there was a, an issue with translation arabic i was i was you like not it's not it. gonna <laughs> it's definitely not going to get across um but so they, that's why men are superior um and he did so they do say that they that, i mean for all so that what i noticed really was the disparity between what they claim uh, and what is the reality so so i you know that they theoretically believe that the genders are equal and that women should have the same rights as men but then there were these comments like well having said that don't forget the sperm has the same you know minerals and, <laughs> and so god's on. a man and god's a man yeah um yeah that was quite funny as well where he, he the elder said yeah we do refer to god as him so you know that's kind of difficult to argue yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. um i was kind of speechless at certain points throughout this interview but yeah i mean actually compared to um some of the communities the other religious communities in lebanon i would say the druze are relatively progressive in that sense and you're you're quite what i struck when when i first heard you were writing this piece i thought you'd come back with quite an excoriating look at these 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 people pursuing a religion and it's causing problems and, and they're part of that part of the world where everything is ratcheted up to such a high level of tension that nothing is is possible but the piece is very kind of fond and warm about them and, and you actually say i think at one point they're kind of emblematic of of a possible world of compromise because they are an amalgam of religions yeah. they, they are relatively forward-looking with the caveats we've just said mm-hmm. did you do you come away thinking in a world where people have to try and get on, they're an example of a, of a sect that, is, that are doing that. It's an interesting question. I mean, in a way, they have to compromise and they have to they have to allow people like me to go and interview them without a headscarf. And they, they realise that. They're quite sort of accepting of the fact that in order to survive in the 21st century, they need to they need to compromise. So I respect them in in that degree, and, and and the younger sheikh that I interviewed was very politically engaged, and he was clearly trying to do his best for not just the other Druze in his in his region that he was governing, but 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 all the religions. And so I respected that element of the religion. Um, it's just viscerally, it's really hard not to react to the sight of women completely covered, apart from this diamond shape on their face. You know, the the, the sheet they wear covers their mouth. And their head, basically everything apart from their nose and their and their eyes, and that is just such a an unsettling sight for me. Even if they didn't want you to do it, they were still enforcing that on their own people. They weren't enforcing it. So I had a conversation with the younger sheikh about this, you know, um, the the sheets that the women wear, and he said, you know, it's it should be entirely up to them. His wife wears it. But because she wants to, apparently, not not because... In fact, she grew up in a very progressive family and none of the other women in her family wore it, but she decided to. And she's one of the religious elders as well. So that's the other thing, that women can achieve, theoretically, the same level of education in the religious scriptures as the men. So, and I mean, it's, it's similar to the Burqa debate, isn't it? I mean, it's, in fact, it's the same. Um, it's the same debate. And so, I, I, but I can't, you know, I can't deny that as a woman, it, it, it troubled me when I was in a room... And this woman was entirely silent in the corner and there was just all these men talking. And there's just something that I couldn't quite, it just didn't sit well with me. But yeah, that is a very big debate, which is perhaps not. It's an interesting lesson. I think the whole piece is is great for this notion that 
it's very easy to tr think you can have hard and fast opinions about issues in that part of the world. And every time you try to, there's all the sands are always shifting, aren't they? And they're mm. probably a good, they're probably a good emblem of that. That it's actually even quite hard to get a fix on them. It's interesting you said earlier that um, I sounded fond in my piece, um, and I did kind of get quite fond of them in a, in a way. And I think that there's a danger. I was aware of feeling nostalgic or sentimental about a religion simply because it was odd and a niche and that I was sort of charmed by it uh, and I didn't want to overlook the fact that actually there of course there are intrinsic problems within it as there are in many religions and should we be interested in preserving a niche religion just because it's niche and because we don't want it to die out why 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 should we have that interest in that particular religion when we wouldn't for a more mainstream big religion like islam or whatever like it, it, it's it, you don't want to treat it like an oddity that needs to be preserved just for that reason well i think you've you've shined a light on it which i think is what's really interesting people i think when you hear about the middle east you hear the name Druze, and you don't really necessarily pursue it further so it uh, thank you so much for, for doing that today yeah you're uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Sam Leith, Alev Scott and to Gabriel Talent. Do go to the tls.co.uk this week to see our paper. And I thought I'd do a little list of what's in it to demonstrate the breadth here. Can you, can you add some gestures and some flourishes? I might do. No one will know if I do, I don't. I'll know. OK. It also covers, as well as the stuff we've talked about today, fake booze, food writing, working class literature, how to read, why bother reading, a history of solar eclipses, depression memoirs, women swimming, the recollections of a literary dominatrix, Turkey, Syria, Hamas, houseboats, Tolkien, abortion, gay rights, Machiavelli, the Sicilian Enlightenment, social housing in London, green belts and FIFA, plus fiction and the arts. <laughs> Is that quite wide-ranging? It was quite wide-ranging. Uh, do uh, tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do review us on iTunes. And after that, we're all exhausted and we'll be taking a week off from podcasting. But we will be returning limber and nimble with full extension of our necks at the beginning of September. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.